0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keenom, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, October the 11th, 2023. The drama in the Middle East continues. The headlines today is that... uh, Uh, Unity government has been created in Israel uh, whilst the country masses its troops near the Gaza Strip. The relationship between war and democracy has always been an interesting one. There's an op-ed in the New York Times by Thomas Friedman. Friedman usually seems somewhat redundant and old-fashioned, but this is an interesting op-ed in which he suggests that Israel needs to be a democracy if it's to win this supposed war. Uh, this might be Friedman's moment or his last moment. Uh, one person who's given a great deal of thought to the relationship between democracy and war and Israel is my guest today. Ava uh, Iluz, is one of the world's leading sociologists, author of many books, um, and uh, she has a new book out just appropriate for our current uh, drama, The Emotional Life of populism how fear disgust resentment and love undermine democracy she doesn't include war but i assume that's part of her narrative she's joining us from paris uh eva what what do you make of the unity government is this good or bad news for democracy in israel
1: Uh, it's probably good and bad news um The mood right now in Israel is to uh, inflict a heavy price on the Hamas, uh, and it is to regain a sense of security. Um, So, I mean, if you think that democracy is about allowing pluralism, uh, times of war are not not times of democracy, uh, because there are times during which everybody puts together, uh, and um, and the, I mean, questioning or discussing or disagreeing is hardly tolerated. So I would say that there, this is a time of great solidarity. And the interesting question that this raises is how much solidarity is needed for democracy. There's a type of solidarity probably that is needed for democracy and another type that is actually inimical to democracy. So I would say that in any case, uh, Israel needs probably now to regain a sense of security in order to uh, go back to the everyday business of having a democracy, which is to say to disagree about the direction that this government has taken.
0: I'm not sure if you've seen the um, the Thomas Friedman op-ed. I'm guessing you're probably not a big fan no but he, he he makes the point that one of the reasons why israel got caught off guard was the crisis of democracy or too much democracy or divisions in israel earlier this year over the supreme court case you're in paris but i know you're 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 talking a lot to everybody in israel is there a sense particularly on the left in israel that uh that this whole crisis was triggered by Netanyahu's obsession with dismantling or what seems to be his obsession with dismantling democracy?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, In fact, I would say that one of the micro debates on the side is whether Netanyahu should leave now or whether Israel should wait for a sense of security to come back for the people to demand its de- his departure. On, uh, I mean, you know, just to give you a few um, anecdotes, if you can call them agne- anecdotes, on July 24th, uh, the Chief of Staff, hezi Levi, asked to meet with Netanyahu before the vote on reasonableness at the Knesset was going to be passed. The vote on reasonableness, reasonableness um, Uh, was going to repel the capacity of the Supreme Court to decide that a law or a decision by a branch of the government um, could be deemed unreasonable and therefore uh, inapplicable. So, Rezi HaLevi, the Chief of Staff, asked to meet with Netanyahu. Netanyahu refused to meet with him, even though he knew that he wanted to brief him about the security situation of Israel. And even though he knew that what he was going to tell him was that passing this law on reasonableness was going to pose a serious threat to Israeli security. And Alevi was not the only one. I mean, former chief of Mossad, of Shinbet. Uh, Generals like Gadi Eisenstadt have been warning incessantly Netanyahu and the government that their judicial coup was posing a severe threat to the security. So that shows you in in a way that these guys who claim to be uh, very tough on security are actually the opposite of it. And it turns out that it was the democratic so-called left-wing camp that was actually far more aware of the security issues involved and that this hyper-ideological government was completely oblivious uh, to the real security threats that its actions uh, were posing for the Israeli government and state.
0: You wrote an interesting piece in Haaretz, you, you're a columnist um, earlier this year, um, in January, saying, why are Israel streets so quiet in the face of a fascist takeover? Were they that quiet? Wasn't there a very significant demonstration on the part of progressives about the Supreme Court initiative?
1: You mean the demonstrations that started afterwards? Yes oh of course uh, so you could say in a way that i was mistaken um and that the uh, reaction of the civil society i have to say um surprised me very much i'm very happy to be wrong uh in this direction um however one could also wonder if in fact um the civil society should not have been more vehement. Um, You know, we have criminals in the government, uh, convicted criminals and more than one, and not only ministers. We have prime ministers, actually, who are convicted criminals. Um, We knew that this government was posing a very serious threat to Israel. Shouldn't have civil society uh, reacted much more forcefully, I don't know, in any case, I'm not here to do the trial of the marvelous, uh, you know, or the marvelous ma- uh, manifestations and demonstrations and demonstrators. I'm not here to do that. I'm simply saying that these demonstrations were very concerned about keeping constantly a consensus. And I think looking for consensus can take you only so far Um, and at least i think it's worth asking the question until when should these demonstrations be pacific and seek absolutely for consensus
0: we are speaking with eva eluz the author of a beautifully titled new book um, the emotional life of populism how fear, disgust, resentment, and love undermine democracy. Uh, Ava, why shouldn't fear, disgust, resentment, and love affect? Why, why do you use this word undermine? Aren't those the most humanable qualities, fear, disgust, resentment, and love? You've written extensively on love. You're a sociologist, not a political theorist.
1: I've written not only on love, but on um, psychological culture. I'm interested in in general in the ways in which emotions um, play a very significant role in what we call social life. We're used of thinking of emotions as as private and individual entities. I think they should be thought of uh, as collective ones. And so, in this book, I try to show, if you want, the ways in which some narratives um, are promoted, uh, especially by the extreme right, and how these narratives become sticky, how they come to really uh, define who we are and our definition of the world around us, because they put into action, if you want, uh, some key emotions the ones that you, have, um, uh, that you have enumerated before, fear, um, disgust, resentment, and love. Now, to your question, why shouldn't these emotions be counted among the um, uh, emotions we want to see in a democracy? Well, first of all, let me say that we normally think of a democracy as being based on rationality. Uh, in different meaning of that word we assume that for somebody to go and cast a vote that person must actually know what is really good for her or for him if we had assumed Who says that, that You're
0: based on rationality when you vote no one makes the rules no one suggested no no constitutionalists no, argue that you can't vote out of fear, disgust, resentment, and love. Why is this based on rational? I, I am it?
1: I am basing my um, uh, my idea, for example, on Habermas's view of a public, um, democratic, uh, a democratic public sphere.
0: Well, doesn't that, theory, uh, doesn't that underline the redundancy of Habermas? that he's so clueless about how people Please, behave. Let
1: me just, let, just, let me just expose my argument, if you don't mind. Okay. I mean, you know, you may disagree with it afterwards, but I'm just saying, I'm just trying to respond to your question. Why aren't these emotions compatible with democracy? So I'm making the claim, first of all, that if you assume that voting, that casting a vote can be done by people who have no clue and no idea about their preferences, as economists would say, then voting is meaningless. So you have to assume that people actually know what they're doing and what their actual preference is when you vote. And second, if you let all ideas compete with each other, and you by it's because you assume somehow that the truth will prevail or the better idea will prevail. Um, so having said that, I wanted to say why I think fear, resentment, uh, disgust, and love are, at least when they are together, do not fit a democratic uh, public uh, polity or public sphere. Um, I think fear, as a primal emotion that is very, that emanates from the the constant designation of outside and inside enemies, prevents you really from making rational decisions and there are tons of experiments that show that indeed when people are activated by fear they tend to move rightward and even to the extreme right Um, because um, um, because you become mainly preoccupied by the enemy rather than by your polity itself and quite often fear is a way to create a connection between the outside enemy and the inside enemy As for disgust, I think that disgust at least in the ways in which I developed this idea in the book, disgust is about designating certain groups as disgusting. I don't think um, we want to approach social groups in a democracy as disgusting or as polluting. I think this is completely contrary to our idea of uh, humanity. Um, Then resentment. I think in the book, what I tried to show was that the social group, which is the Mizrachim, the Jews of Sephardic origins, who were truly discriminated against, actually chose, um, you know, uh, they, they, they misdirected their anger and their resentment. So when you choose the wrong target, they have been indeed discriminated against. And this sense of having been discriminated against has been very fruitfully used by the right for the last 30 or 40 years in order to cast the liberal elites and universalism and democracy itself as having the intent of discriminating them. And then I would say that the love of the country as as I develop it, if it is about reinforcing too much the boundaries of your group, if it is about claiming that only your group is the one that deserves to be loved, then that also is against that, listen, uh, you know, a conception of democracy as being able to include many different groups and kinds of people. If the boundaries around your group are too rigid, then the mo- democracy is likely to become a kind of ethnocracy. And um, and and I believe that through these four emotions, these shift, this subtle shift have happens more easily.
0: It, it's interesting what you're saying, Avery. it it perhaps underlines why the left has lost this war over democracy, why? you just start recognizing the way people are. I mean, it's all very well relying on Habermas and all this other academic sociology, but people don't behave in that kind of way. They are driven by fear, disgust, resentment, and love, as you acknowledge. Um, And you can write it off. You can claim that they're irrational. You can claim that they're acting against their own interests, but it's such an elitist assumption to tell people that they're not behaving according to their own particular interest. How do... How do progressives like yourself and many of the people watching and listening to this show? How do they recognise the way people really are and build it onto a, a new kind of, shall we say, progressive populism? How can we get away from the, the the kind of nonsense that people like Habermas have been writing for forty or fifty years?
1: I find you a bit severe. Um, I think that. Progressives think uh, a lot, perhaps too much sometimes, about what ought to be, uh, and that the uh, distinction between the is and the ought is often what thinking is about. Uh, And if you don't have ideals, um, in my opinion, you don't have politics. So I don't think we should be as dismissive of ideals as you seem to be. Um, I'm
0: not no, let, let me just uh, <laughs> let, let me just say that I'm not dismissive of ideals in fact the reverse is true but continue
1: uh, so so having said that um, I do think and I do agree with you that the left has lost something uh, and I, I'm not exactly sure I could identify what it has lost for one thing one thing that it has for sure lost is a connection, a historical connection, to the working class. Uh, that we know for sure, the left became sometime during the 1980s or 1990s, um, concentrated in big cities, universities, the arts, the media, uh, etc. and has uh, used, I would say, even its um, uh, you know, progressive ideals exactly as I said, as a kind of status signal uh, to mark itself as morally and culturally superior to other classes. That does not mean, in my opinion, this. I mean, this sociological phenomenon does not mean that the initial or the core ideas of progressivism are wrong. It means that they should be in my. I think um uh, much better explained with less moral arrogance and they sh- and then the connection the historical connection between the working class and the left should be uh, reinstated i hope i have answered you
0: yeah and you say the left has lost something I, I mean you argue that the left has lost its connection with the working class but from what you're saying it seems as if the left or progressives have lost a connection with human beings by not being able to understand that fear the, the the four things that you write about in your emotional life of populism fear disgust resentment and love that is what politics and that's what being human is all about isn't it especially in our age of ai so how do we you, you've written this book the emotional life of populism how can this life of populism be transformed so that it's actually progressive rather than reactionary since populism is another word to describe the human condition.
1: So listen I I think that what I described in the book is the fact that the extreme right has often no compunction to uh, using um, lies to uh, in order to elicit, Maximum disgust, for example, or fear or resentment from uh, certain groups which it deems its electoral base. Now, it is true that the left has refused to do that uh, and will probably continue to to a large extent. I'm not saying that uh, people on the left are saints, of course not. Uh, But I think in Israel, I would say, by and large, the left has refused to do that. It has refused to do that. And I think this is what has enabled it today to be in the street, to protest and to have a moral status that other people can recognize. And in fact, I mean, you know, I don't know if it's exactly connected, but by association, uh, the um, organization that, um, you know, that is uh, at the center of the protest, protest it's co- is called brothers and sisters in arms and it is there are thousands of soldiers who refuse to respond to the call of duty before this war they are the ones who are actually responsible for a great deal of the voluntary uh, work that is being done now in civil society to help the residents of the southern region i'm saying that these people have now acquired a moral status that even people on the right are forced to recognize. Um, And so, you know, if to win, so there is in politics, I think, a tension between winning and between being right. And I think that the left, at least in Israel, has often been happier being right, morally right, rather than winning. And I think we should live in this tension. So I regret sometimes, the I regret like you, the left sometimes does not use uh, more, uh, how should how I put it, perhaps dirtier strategies in order to win. But I think I am also prouder of my political camp this way. And so I think we should keep this tension alive among the left. So. I think this is what you mean also by the left not recognizing uh what is uh what is the lowest perhaps and the basest in human beings it does not want to use lies in order to elicit resentment or fear in a gratuitous way yes i i, I claim it
0: you claim it Ava. Uh, you wrote an interesting piece uh in um Uh, You you have this wonderful column in Hararetz about Israel's fraudulent notion of Jewish democracy. But aren't you articulating a a version of Christian democracy? The idea that we can be above Caesar and that that's ethically justifiable um, and that that moral superiority, which you're claiming, uh, is fine. We lose and we feel superior and that's the end of it. Meanwhile, the Netanyahu's and the Trumps come to power.
1: You're very good about putting words in my mouth. I no, never said that. <laughs> no, no, I never said that. I said that the tension between the two should be kept. I think we should keep the tension, and I think, um, so, and I think you falsely also assume, if I may say so, Keen, that ideas don't you can win. Call me Andrew. Ideas hey. often win. Ideas as ideas. Often win, they win the day. They don't always win, but the 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 power and the moral force of ideas can win sometimes. And I'm not saying this is a morally superior position because that would be assuming that people who are not of my camp have no moral uh, uh, capabilities, which is not an opinion I have at all. I think most people actually have moral competence. Um, they uh, simply need to be, I mean, that moral competence needs not to be obscured, for example, by fear.
0: But isn't, I mean, maybe I'm repeating myself, over is Isn't fear a are... uh, quintessential, I mean, Hobbes wrote about fear as the foundations of his great leviathan, which is the foundations of modern political theory. Um, let's get to, let's get to fixes. Um The Emotional Life of Populism, your new book, How Fear, Disgust, Resentment and Love, Undermine Democracy. You clearly care about democracy. You're a Democrat. You want democracy to win and succeed in Israel and around the world. What needs to happen? We have a show coming up next week with the New York Times economics writer, David Leonard. He has a new book out about the death of the American dream. And he argues in the book that progressives need to rediscover Populist politicians. The one he finds in American history is uh, Bobby Kennedy, who he argues was the last Democratic, big D Democratic politician to actually able to speak to the American working class. Is there a need for politicians, contemporary politicians, to build on the tradition of someone like Bobby Kennedy in in rebuilding? um democracies in a more populist way.
1: Look, I don't know what you mean or he means by populist, because I think it means different things. Uh Chantal Mouffe, who is a social socialist left-wing theorist, has also made the argument, she's she has been one of the advisors of Luc Mélenchon, and she has um um, presumably advocated for a populist move. Um, if you mean by populism um, the appeal to emotions and charisma, um, then I think everybody will be—I uh, uh, um, I mean, not everybody—but I would completely agree with either you or him or both. If you, in, if you mean populism, but. If by populism you mean to be aware that the left has been isolated in an enclave, a cultural and economic privileged enclave, and become closer to the people, absolutely. I completely agree with that. If you mean to talk in the name of the people, I would entirely agree with that but by populism we not only mean that today we also mean autocratic tendencies and we mean also the voluntary and deliberate distortion of facts in order to uh, bend your electorate to your own means and politics that i think would be for me of uh sh- should be uh, of the mark of left-wing democratic populist politics
0: hey We speak today um, on uh, October the 11th, 2023. It's hard to know what's going to happen in the next few days. But how can democracy in Israel be strengthened by what's happening? What would you like to see? It's clearly almost uh, careful with this word, but it seems inevitable that Israel is about to invade the Gaza Strip. What would you like to see in Israel in terms of its democracy um, in order to address and perhaps solve this terrible crisis,
1: you mean in the next few days or you mean? Well, in no, not in the, the next future? few days,
0: in the next few months and perhaps even years as this crisis plays itself out. It seems, on the one hand, it's very new, on the other hand, it's very familiar. Uh, Hamas does something outrageous, the, Amer- uh, the the Israelis react, often overreact. And then we have this huge global debate about what Israel can and can't do. And meanwhile, nothing really changes. And Israel de- Israeli democracy seems to become more and more, shall we say, populist. What would you like so, to see happen? What can we learn from the past in terms of playing this crisis out today?
1: So, you know, um, many Israelis like me have experienced this um massacre uh, and terrorist attacks as the outcome of a systemic failure of security, intelligence, defense systems, you name it but it, it's a s- systemic failure I think that comes from actually from far and long. Uh, I don't want to get bogged down in the details here, uh, but I think that what uh, this systemic failure points to, For example, just to give you an example, the army became in the last decade or two an occupation army. An occupation army is trained mostly to actually deal with civilians and punish civilians and control civilians. This is not an army that is suitable for, um, you know, regular battles as were needed in this case. Um, So that's just one example of the kind of mistakes, profound mistakes, that have been done in the last two decades um, and political conceptions, and un- anti-democratic political conceptions that have, um, if you want, that have um, rendered uh, security system very weak. So what I would like for, uh, uh, for, I mean, what I would like to happen is a complete rethinking, a very fundamental rethinking of the ways in which this conflict should be resolved. In my opinion, it cannot be resolved only by military means, but political means are absolutely uh, necessary. And it should also involve a renegotiation of the contract between the ultra-Orthodox and the uh secular people inside israel i think um i, I think you know I, and i think this will be ultimately i mean if uh things go as they should uh ideally go in an ideal world it is ab- this deep thinking about the very foundations of israel that we should be seeing after the war presumably and and
0: he's won. Final question, Ava. As I'm sure you know, there's a huge debate in the West now about American support for Israel and Palestine, demonstrations, counter-demonstrations, massive controversy in American universities. You've written about the intellectuals' dilemma, choosing between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. What do you make of the the various controversies now in the united states in particular should uh, or or can universities enable free discussion on this issue Uh, some people argue larry summers seems to suggest that harvard should almost clamp down on people who are sympathetic to the the palestinians what's your take on the way in which uh, the, the the tragic crisis uh, in Israel Gaza Strip is playing out in in America, particularly in American universities.
1: Look, I mean, people do. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for your question. Uh, people do as if um, it's or or either or. Uh, in so, on the one hand, for me, for me as an Israeli. Uh, what the Hamas did is practically equivalent to what uh, ISIS or Daesh did. Um, these are crimes against humanity, uh, quite simply, uh, if one can put it this way. And about, I mean, crimes ag- against humanity, I will want to hope that uh, nobody with a moral position could um, support them in any way. This does not mean also that um, there has not been uh, mistakes in the ways in which the the Palestinian issue has been dealt with. I will give you just one example. One of the security doctrines that has been very dominant in the Israeli security establishment, the fact that the Hamas privileged vis a vis the uh, Palestinian Authority. And so um, so th- there were many mistakes that were done along the way. Uh, by israelis and by palestinians um and also in addition uh palestinians living in gaza are living in an open prison this is no secret for anyone the people who live in the west bank are deprived of often of basic human rights that is also uh no um a secret the oh, These things can be true at one and the same time. So, personally, I would uh, refuse to discuss even with anyone who would uh, think of supporting the crimes against humanity that were committed by Hamas, um, on the one hand. On the other hand, I think that for the security of my country, I would want Israel to um, change, to try and see how it can bring itself and the Palestinians to change course.